Welcome back to the Bear Market Brief Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and today we're talking Russia's military. There's a joke about Russia's newest tank, the T-14, otherwise known as the Armada, and it goes something like this. The Armada is such a powerful tank that a single brigade could destroy, pause, Russia's entire budget. So what is the latest with Russia's military? How is modernization going? What are its priorities these days? And what are the misconceptions out there? Joining us to discuss is none other than Michael Kaufman. Michael is the director of the Russia Studies program at CNA and a fellow at the Kennan Institute with the Woodrow Wilson International Center here in sunny Washington, DC. His research focuses on Russia and the former Soviet Union, and he specializes in Russia's armed forces, military thought, capabilities, and strategy. We had a great, expansive conversation and hope you enjoy. So to kick things off, uh, I want to start with a big question. What is Russia's military for? And I don't mean what does it do? We know it has hardware, tanks, fighters, but what strategic doctrinal concerns motivate its generals? Yeah. Well, you know, militaries are never for just one specific thing, but the the order uh, of priorities that the military has to deal with are first and foremost to defend the state um, and for a lot of political systems and regimes that identify themselves as a state from uh, enemies that could be existential, that is to deter great powers or superpowers like the United States. Um, The second one is often you know, to be able to be a useful instrument of national power in pursuit of the state's foreign policy in both wars, defensive or offensive. Although, you know, most regimes tend to characterize their conflicts, however they may be, as defensive, right? They always rationalize them as such. The job of the military is to be able to handle a range of conflicts and contingencies. And for the Russian military, that is broadly five types of conflicts that they have to be able to deal with deter. And if deterring those conflicts isn't possible, then to be able to win or in cases like nuclear war, where, you know, what victory looks like doesn't really qualify as a victory, where we like to say attain the best possible outcome for the state in a sort of lose-lose scenario, right? And those conflicts are armed conflict, which is an internal localized conflict, something along the lines of a Chechen war. A local war, which is a war with a single state with limited objectives, that is like a Russia-Georgia war or the Russia-Ukraine war. A regional war, which is sort of the Russian construct for a potential war with NATO, that is a war against a coalition of states backed by another major power. And a large-scale war. And the large-scale war is a multi-theater war. That is a war that takes place on several fronts. Uh, against a big power that's a global force like the United States. And then there's also nuclear war, but nuclear war is a discussion really about a strategic nuclear exchange, right? That's to be able to deter a nuclear attack by a power like the United States and to have a survivable nuclear deterrent to retaliate against it. So these are kind of the Russian doctrinal constructs um, for the conflicts that the military has to be able to deal with. In terms of priority, it's safe to say that priority number one is, of course, maintaining a survival nuclear deterrent that in Russian view secures the sovereignty of the state, maintain a capable conventional military and conventional deterrent that's able to take on the United States and NATO on one front or able to take on China and the Far East if need be, 
Uh, although that's definitely geared much more towards NATO and the United States than it is towards China. That's an honest reading. Um, and then the third one is to be able to conduct a limited intervention of Russia's near abroad, like in Central Asian states or the Caucasus, and increasingly added to that is the capacity for expeditionary operations like Syria, to be able to leave Russia's immediate region and project power to at least an adjacent region. We're not talking about a massive global force like the United States, which is heavily based around the logistics required to project power around the world, right? But we are talking about the ability to project power in a limited way beyond Russia's immediate region into another region or another country's backyard. Fascinating. Yeah, it's uh, the topic of a lot of conversation, not least on Twitter, but I'm sure in the Pentagon as well. Uh, relating to projecting power, I want to talk about some of the lessons learned uh, mm -hmm. for Russia doing that, both in its quote-unquote near abroad, uh, but also beyond its immediate region. So we've had, going back to 2008, interventions in Georgia, Ukraine, now we have Syria, Libya. So could you walk us through some of the lessons learned, the experience of Russia in each conflict? What are the takeaways? What changes has it prompted? Uh, has it been successful or un unsuccessful and why? Yeah, that's a great question. So let's kind of try to situate these conflicts in this conversation in the context of what's taking place in the Russian military. The Russian military went through a period of transformative reform starting in late 2008. They were long overdue. And that's Soviet mass mobilization army that uh, Russia had inherited. And the honest story is that Russia had attempted partial reforms throughout the 90s and had some successful stabilizing reforms through the 2000s before the Russia-Georgia War. But the big reforms really were starting to take place between 08 and 2012. On top of that, the Russian government launched a massive modernization and recapitalization program starting in 2011, and it's still running through today. And this program was designed to basically make up for two decades of divestment in the Russian military uh, and, and to infuse it with modernized equipment, new equipment, and to deploy it and the like. Um, so these programs have been proceeding in tandem, and you can see big changes began to take place after 2013. Both conflicts, both the Russian uh, war Ukraine and the Russian intervention in Syria, um, they're essentially uh, bloodying the force, and in Syria quite intentionally, and that the, the reforms began to take a somewhat different direction after 2013 under new military leadership. As you know, the military leadership changed in that year from the Minister of Defense being Sergeyev and the Chief of General Staff being Makarov to Shoigu and the Chief of General Staff being Valery Gerasimov. Okay, so they basically inherited this raw, undercooked piece of meat as a military. They'd gone through these reforms, but had yet to congeal into a real fighting force, and was sort of a, it was sort of a standing army. It had some new equipment, but it had a long way to go to be in a place where it could uh, force generate, um, that is, get the troops from their garrison with their gear deploy somewhere far off from where they were based and actually project power, even just um, to Russia's borders. So Ukraine ends up being, in some ways, uh, the first test or contest for this force. And parts of the Russian military are rotated to Ukraine in battalion tactical groups, in many ways intentionally to actually to bloody them and spread the experience. And that continues to a much greater extent in Syria. The real crucible for the Russian military is Syria. Syria is the place where all senior Russian commanders go to get operational experience and to get command experience. 
And through Syria, Russia has, Russia has rotated the entire senior officer corps of military district commanders, uh, combined branch and arm commanders, um, combined arm army commanders, deputy commanders, even division commanders. They've also already through probably more than 70% of the Russian airspace forces, both fixed wing aviation, aircraft, and rotor aviation, which are helicopters. And that's a lot. That's a pretty large percentage of the Air Force getting experience time there. So Syria to Russia is worth its weight in gold. It's more valuable than any um, annual command staff exercise and any training. And it's viewed by the Russian military as the good war. To get promoted, you have to go to Syria. So institutionally, there's a huge incentive. You want to go. Um, the odds of uh, being killed are infinitesimally small. And the likelihood of promotion and further command after going to Syria are high. So Russia's both sort of, um, you know, I have an article I think I wrote a while back that talks about sort of from hammer to rapier, that is Russia's reforging a military tool that inherited from the Soviet Union in some ways that was defunct, but when inherited, it looked a lot more like a big hammer and it's making it more like a rapier. Of course, all analogies are imperfect, but that might be a way to think of it. Um, the big lessons from Ukraine and Syria, from Ukraine, there aren't too many. I think Ukraine showed for Russia that in terms of equipment, um, Russian good enough was more than sufficient to beat any former Soviet republic. And the strongest uh, former Soviet state was definitely Ukraine. Um, and, and to be honest, I think from the Russian perspective, that uh, it, it ultimately wasn't that challenging as a highly constrained limited conflict. But of the two operations that they had there, I would summarize them this way. Crimea was highly successful, the seizure and annexation of the peninsula, but because of structural factors, it was very distinct and not very repeatable in any other context, right? That's just the reality. So it was successful, but difficult to reproduce. What happened in Donbass and Eastern Ukraine, I think from Russian point of view is easily reproducible, but nobody wants to reproduce that because it was a fitful cycle of escalation. It led to Russia increasingly chipping in with more and more forces to convince Ukrainians that they couldn't win. And ultimately resulted in limited conventional war. And that's how actually a lot of Russian conflicts add up. For all this talk about hybrid war and, and integration of um, irregular, unconventional, and other approaches with conventional ones, the reality is that most Russian wars are high-end conventional conflicts where all this other stuff is sort of noise and tanks really decide what happens, or aircraft in the case of Syria. And it's principally, it's a conventional war with a lot of these other aspects added to them, but they're not all that decisive relevant to conventional military power. Um, and, and, that's still, and, and that's still very much the case today in the Russian military. It is a very firepower heavy military. On Syria, the, the lessons from Syria, Syria is really the first tactical experience for the Russian military that is deeply meaningful, for which all the senior officers have gone through. It is seen as a victorious war, which means the lessons of it are being promoted and integrated, right? Um, and it's the first one since World War II, because honestly, for a very long time in Russia, if you could go back through and look at a lot of the, the knowledge base, it was still pretty heavily derived from World War II and experiences of World War II. In fact, a lot of it was almost forgotten. Um, some was forgotten since World War II. And so Syria is breeding a new generation of commanders who have gone through it. They go back to the military and they say, hey, we fought in Syria and we won, and this is what we did, and this should now be integrated in exercises. 
Plus, it has a huge shaping influence on the state armament program, modernization of equipment, because they're testing a lot of things there. They're seeing what works, what doesn't, what's missing from the force, and there's plenty of things that are missing. There are plenty of things that are big problems in integration in terms of technology. And it created a great opportunity for them between the first state armament program and the second one that was launched in 2018. These are kind of like five-year big military procurement plans to really think about what they want to buy. And the lesson from Syria was that modernized Soviet platforms, planes, helicopters, what have you, tanks, that they're, they're good enough. Um, they actually have a strong role in the battlefield today. But that the challenge is that the Russian military was really missing important parts of the toolkit. It was missing precision guide munitions. It was missing the enabling technology to employ it. And it uh, needed to get a lot better in terms of service integration coordination. Because a lot of times parts of the military just don't work together very well. You, you think they would, even if you buy them the technology, sort of say like, you know, oftentimes the military uh, and institutions, you can sort of, you can bring the horse to water and the horse just sort of stares at you and stares at the water and isn't sure what it's supposed to do. Right. And that's the challenge. You That's what conflicts like that reveal. Yeah. Uh, so I guess that's actually uh, a great segue to our next question here. So you talked about uh, modernization, the state armament program, and a big factor that's been discussed in the West, but also within you know, Russian elite circles uh, with some of the economic pl uh, planners bringing this over to our bread and butter here uh, with the Bear Market Brief podcast is affordability and Russia's ability to pay for all of this new equipment and support a military that large and purchase especially uh, cutting edge equipment. So I guess I would ask, how sustainable is this modernization program? Is it feasible to continue given budgetary constraints even before coronavirus and uh, what's going on in oil markets? Uh, and on the, the flip side of that coin, uh, is this too great a budgetary priority to actually be meaningfully cut? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the first question I think is a very good practical question. The second one is sort of a political one. Um, I think that it's very sustainable. Let me give kind of a nuts and bolts of Russian defense spending here. Where, So realistically, um, the bulk of recapitalization in the Russian military took place between 2011 and 2015. They had already bought a tremendous amount of hardware. And they have sequestered defense spending. They sort of tapered it on off level, uh, relatively level to inflation in that the defense budget uh, is not increasing and is slowly decreasing as a share of GDP when you look at defense spending as a share of GDP. Um, and roughly, so the base state defense order probably right now is fair to say at about 2.9% of GDP. If you include the rest of relevant military spending, you're going to get more towards 3.9% of GDP. That's definitely a lot more than most countries spend on defense, certainly a lot more than Europeans spend on defense, but it's proximate to what countries like the United States spend on defense. That's a lot. It's a pretty large share. And, and that's what we know. There's, it could probably go higher if you include a few more items. Um, the real effect of spending, of course, what that budget buys you is quite a bit because Russia's defense industry and Russia's military is largely autarkic, right? It is able to produce most of the things that the state needs to buy. And the state is therefore able to procure almost everything in rubles with fairly small amount of import components. And most of the components that the Russian military used to import were actually from Ukraine, where they were much cheaper. In fact, the reason Russia was so highly dependent on Ukraine's defense sector is because Ukraine inherited these large high-tech industries from the Soviet Union. And it was actually cheaper to buy from them than even make your own uh, 
and and you know that even the there's a three there's a three times difference in per capita income between if you look back between Ukraine and Russia. So the 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 the, uh, the, the cost rationale was there. Okay. Um, but I should make clear that sort of the sanctions, what they really interrupted for Russia, it's not that Russia was buying all these equipment from Switzerland and Germany, it was actually buying mostly from Ukraine. But we can talk about the impact of sanctions later. The budget itself probably buys somewhere around $180 billion worth of gear per year. Most places that rank defense spending, like CIPRI or IISS, do it terribly. I mean, they do it exactly wrong because they basically just convert uh, whatever the annual spending is in rubles based on market exchange rates into dollars. So if the Russian ruble declined against the dollar by 50%, they're going to write the Russian defense spending declined by 50%, even if it increased by 3%, you know? And so it gets you, it, it gets you something that's terribly wrong. Um, and we go much more off of purchasing power parity adjusted for certain things, degree of, of autarky, level of imports. So that in countries that import very little, like Russia, gets you a lot. It's not an exact measure, but so often when we do defense comparison, we say, okay, it's better to have an estimate that's um, pretty close, but a bit off from what it likely is, than it is to be precisely wrong and just sort of pretend that Russian Russia's defense budget is as though Russia bought all of its equipment from the United States, which is completely senseless. Um, they're able to sustain this defense spending pretty easily, I'll be honest. So the... Big difference between Western defense budgets and a country like Russia is that the U.S. spends far more on its force, on the benefits for its force, on the operations, and that disparity basically amounts to um, most European countries, if they're lucky, able to spend 20% on procurement and modernization. United States able to spend a bit more. A uh, country like Russia, their defense budget, the, the state order, uh, spends 50% on R&D and procurement together. Um, if we just go procurement, that probably is towards 40% of the budget, which is a lot. Because the Russian military costs them a lot less than the Western military costs to them. Part of that is a percentage share conscripts, right? Because maybe a third of the military are conscripts and they're pretty cheap. Uh, but there are a lot of things that go into that cost reward. I hope that makes sense. As far as priorities go, I would say that the state had been keen to invest in recapitalization, but consistently political leadership had said that they will not let defense spending run away and eat the rest of the budget and, and do injury to it the way the Soviet defense budget terribly hamstrung the Soviet Union. Um, and that's very visible by how they tapered it off over time. right? And they've, they've not given into demands to drastic cuts by people like Kudrin, who really wanted the budget to decline as a share of GDP. Uh, but it is steadily being tapered off. I don't think it's going to be significantly dented um, by decline in energy and oil prices. It's been pretty well defended. And if you look at defense spending, uh, both military reform modernization, let's say after 2008 crisis, you'll see that the reforms are basically launched in the midst of low, pri low oil prices in 2008. And a lot of the investment is being done um, sort of uh, incongruent with shifts in energy prices, if that makes sense. That is, it doesn't seem to be pegged to them. So it seems like a pretty stable priority over the long term, much more minute shifts than you know, rapid adjustments, of course, depending on the economy. Yeah, I think what's happening is that they're coasting because they already, they already had the sunk cost of the recapitalization period, and now they're able to spend much less 
to maintain a rate of modernization and procurement per year that will afford them to keep pace, right? And, and again, given that they buy way more stuff than any Western military, right, as a share of the budget, because you always say, you just look at spending, you say, how do people divvy up their spending, what they buy? You can see that actually, even with increased defense spending, Europeans realistically are going to have a very hard time to keep up in terms of uh, capabilities and in terms of operational readiness and uh, what they're able to field as a force. Because, and this for your listeners, you know, you're often dealing with a basic triangle between investments and a military has to balance between three things and in investments. Um, the first one is the size of the force, whether it's going to be big or small, how many things you have. The second one is capabilities, what kind of weapons it'll have. You can have a very large force, but it's not going to be armed very well. There are plenty of militaries that look like that. You know, you can have lots of people, but they don't have a lot to fight with. Or you can have a couple of 35s, but you're only going to have five of them. You know, they can be super expensive and very capable, but they'll be very few. And the third one is readiness. How ready is that force? What can you generate um, on relatively short notice? Because I often tell sort of Julian's uh, in, in the office and others, Excel spreadsheets don't fight. Lots of militaries look amazing on Excel spreadsheets, and they actually cannot march off of that Excel spreadsheet in real fighting power to any military contingency. They are terrible. They're going to run out of ammo. They're going to run out of munitions and have all these units. In many ways, this is a story with NATO on paper. And then you ask them, how much time do you need to be able to generate all those people that you have on paper? And the answer might be a year. Okay, I need a year's notice for all that. And then we say, yes, well, what could you get me in under a month? Well, under a month, you know, it's going to be a very small fraction of what's on that piece of paper. So relating to NATO, and you mentioned keeping up, I think a relevant question is uh, Russia, and this relates to sanctions as well, Russia's capability to, quote unquote, keep up with Western militaries. Where does it stand in comparison? Has has the recapitalization, the state armaments program narrowed the gap meaningfully? Yes, absolutely. Um, the main limitation on Russian uh, military modernization has always been industrial capacity, not so much R&D. They have a real challenge in being able to mass and serial produce the latest generation of equipment. And that is born of a defense industrial capacity, actually building the thing. They've done very well in putting into action, deploying across the force, the latest generation of technology, a lot of it based on Soviet design, sort of the things that the Soviet Union would have deployed if it was alive in the 90s. And they've done incredibly well, despite all this talk about brain drain from Russia. Oh, my God, I've been hearing the story for a long time. They've done incredibly well in key technologies when we're talking about this current uh, generation of warfare from hypersonic weapons to electronic warfare to advanced and novel nuclear weapons. Um, I, I would say that on the whole across the board, for a much smaller amount of money spent on R&D and procurement, they've done very well in terms of the technology and know-how. What's in question is whether or not they will have the capacity to distribute along the force these capabilities in a sizable, sort of on a scalable manner, right? That they, they're able to serially produce they both have the money, but most importantly, the defense industrial capacity. And where I think I tend to come down is all, most of the writing that says there are financial limitations, and that is what's suppressing Russia's ability to modernize, is wrong. And we see that fairly consistently in most sectors. Okay, Money, obviously, is a constraint, and it forces a, a defense establishment to make choices. 
but that's not the primary constraint. It is mostly the ability to actually produce the stuff because Russia's missing a lot of key enabling industries and civilian industries that the United States has and other countries have that make lots of basic things, whether it's light aircraft engines to electronics components that are its real Achilles heel. That's where a partnership with countries like China really comes into play. Gotcha. So relating or moving to the next question, rather, uh, we talked over the course of the episode about some of the misconceptions uh, relating to Russia's military, uh, misconceptions about using dollars to measure how Russia purchases equipment. You know, if your economy is based in rubles, you don't need dollars. But I want to address some of the more prolific misconceptions about Russian defense world. Uh, to name a couple of them, uh, you see frequently you know, maps of the Baltic Sea and where Russia has its S-400s and S-300s. Oh, my God, these are invisible force fields. Whatever are we going to do? You see, quote unquote, I'm going to slaughter this name and say it very Americanly, but the Gerasimov doctrine. Please don't hurt Get me, us. listeners. Um, but can we talk about some of those? What are some of the most prolific and maybe harmful ones you've run into or run into frequently? Yeah. Um, look, as always, you get these sort of tropes and um, faddish things that emerge when people are uh, basically trying to study a problem and switch their attention to it. So you have a lot of bad takes that crop up early on, and it takes a while to get rid of them. You have lots of people getting involved in doing analysis in it that don't much experience in it, to be perfectly honest. Um, and you have a lot of this sort of high velocity learning, which to me is basically making mistakes as fast as you can. You know, that's what it, that's what that's what it tends to amount to. Um, so the challenge with the Russian military is that often defense planners and strategists focus on the things that they see most problematic to themselves. And that's how the Russian military kind of um, became um, sort of reduced to S-400 air defense, Iskander-M tactical operational missile complex, like two, three things, right? And the reality is that it's it's a pretty sophisticated force, both as a conventional force, a force that is very heavily nuclear armed with non-strategic nuclear weapons and strategic nuclear weapons. And a lot of the things that people talk about in terms of um, the kind of military balance and the, the significance of these capabilities, they're not true. Um, they're not true because the... Um, they, they're basically uh, trying to deal with two variables often about which they don't know much. Variable, like the first one is what this capability actually does. And the second one is what our capabilities, the blue side, are able to do and how those two match up against each other, right? So something can be incredibly impressive. Um, but, you all, but the first question you have to ask is, what can it really do? against both the capabilities and the operational concepts of a country like the United States. You know, I hope that makes sense, right? Um, and so the, the long and the short of it is that, this is obviously a much longer conversation, but uh, Russian air defense and certain capabilities that people globbed onto are really, really exaggerated in terms of the effects they can have. And what people tend to overfocus on is capabilities they don't look at operational concepts. Russian operational concepts and military strategy is quite good. It's quite good. 
And all these things in aggregate, um, they do pose a problem sort of for the preferred US way of war. None of them are insurmountable. Some could be absolutely uh, problematic for a typical European military, but that's not who they're aimed at, right? The Russian military built these first and foremost to be able to deal with a technologically superior power like the United States. Are they magical force fields? Absolutely not. Um, they're there fundamentally to uh, be able to degrade and deflect an attack and most importantly to absorb it. They're actually not very good defense mechanisms in terms of modern aerospace combat for the simple reason that you can shoot much of your long-range standoff munitions basically through these alleged force fields um, and hit the critical objects you want to hit. Missile defense is incredibly hard. The second one is that with a fifth generation Air Force, the real net impact of all that air defense against stealth aircraft is very questionable, that matchup. And I, I, won't, I won't get into that conversation, but just to say that, you, again, you're dealing with a lot of technological complexities that um, it's very hard to represent with these silly red angry circles on a map like journals tend to draw them. And, and that basically shows a hypothetical range of the radar or missile on air defense but it's not meaningful it doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything in a military sense um and and so the the sort of answer people want is well how good is that military well the answer is um it's certainly not able to create magical force fields that defend against the united states or nato nor do the russians remotely believe that you actually they have a fairly um gloomy view of their ability to deter the United States to conventional capabilities alone. But most Russian operational planning had always been offensive since World War II for a very particular reason. One, they interpret defense to be cost prohibitive. Um, two, uh, they much more prefer preemptive neutralization rather than having to absorb a blow and then counterattack. And there's a strong reason for that for those who are familiar with Russian and Soviet military history. And that continues to, to cast a long shadow over Russian military thinking today, which is not to permit strategic surprise or a deep offensive operation like Operation Barbarossa to take place again. And so a lot of these uh, things are misinterpreted as some sort of Russian defense strategy, but there really isn't. On the sort of bugaboos and military concepts, well, we have this Gerasimov doctrine, which is a completely made up fiction. He's a chief of general staff. He doesn't have any doctrine associated with him. And it was somewhat comical. To, to see this kind of, it was a, it was uh, an odd impression that got built off of a take, as you know, by Mark Galeotti. He didn't mean, ever mean that Gerasimov had a doctrine. It's sort of um, clever verbiage that he came up with. But as you know, when you coin something, you always have to be careful because it can escape your laboratory and then it can become like a monster in a bad horror film, which later on comes back and kills everyone. And that's what happened with the Gerasimov doctrine and escalate to deescalate and some ways hybrid war, which is now this blob type meaningless term where if you say hybrid war, nobody actually knows what you're going to talk about. Um, I have a, an article on Riddle about sort of Gerasimov, the man without a doctrine, where I sort of talk about the main intellectual trends in the Russian military. And it's very much a military that bases its thinking off of uh, war as organized violence, which involves primarily conventional nuclear weapons. 
it has added to their thinking non-military methods and the significance of non-military methods, particularly during phases of sort of imminent threat or danger and during the early periods of war. And it's been talking a lot more about that as an addition to um, the standard conception that, you know, war is about hurting people and breaking things. And uh, the thinking that comes out today is that the war, the way they describe it as new type warfare, which is a glib term because there's very few things that are new in warfare. Usually whenever people say something's new, well, it means actually that's very old, but it happens to be new to them because they haven't dealt with that problem before personally, right? Very few things that have the word new ahead of them are actually new, particularly in warfare. Um, as I like to say, the character of war changes over time, but the nature of warfare stays the same. It's enduring. And new type warfare is essentially a Russian uh, construct that combines standoff, high precision capabilities and sort of airspace attack, which is what they fear the United States can do with them, together with non-military methods that will politically destabilize a country in advance of a sophisticated airspace operation. Uh, the other main driving concepts are the are preemptive neutralization, the belief that, look, if defense is cost prohibitive and you have a credible imminent threat, then you should be the one that strikes first. Um, and the next one is coming out of Syria, which is the steady doctrinal sort of formulation of what future expeditionary operations can look like, which they call uh, limited actions. That is how you could deploy a force and conduct an expeditionary operation like Syria elsewhere, let's say Libya, where it looks like um, they're doing one now under uh, sort of plausibly or implausibly deniable uh, premises. So war is about hurting people and breaking things. I think that's the a key takeaway in this little foray into defense worlds that we're taking now. Just a quick clarification for listeners. Uh, standoff just refers to the ability to hurt people and break things from a very great distance away without risking yourself. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. This was uh, really revelatory. I'm sure everyone learned a lot. Uh, we thank you again. Yeah, thanks for having me on your program. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, as always, for tuning in, and be sure to follow BMB Russia and Ukraine on Twitter at the handle at Bear Market Brief. I've got a really interesting two-part feature in the works, so more to come soon. BMB is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a nonpartisan think tank in Philadelphia. For more information about this and other initiatives, be sure to visit www.fpri.org.